0: This program is not about suicide. If you or someone you know needs immediate assistance with suicidal ideation or depression, please contact your local 24-7 crisis support service. If you're in Australia, try Lifeline on 13 11 14, Kids Helpline on one 55 1800 or the other services listed on our website at wheelercentre.com slash betteroffdead. There is no death. There's only me, 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 who's dying.
1: I'm not going to say I'm going to control everybody's physical pain. No, I'm not going to be able to do that, because there will always be some patients who will have pain that's not controlled. And I accept that, but I also make sure that I tell patients, this is the best I've done. This is as much as I can minimise your patient's pain, but I'm going to help you live with that pain.
2: Professor Richard Chai is the director of the Sacred Heart Palliative Care Unit at St Vincent's Hospital in Sydney. He's invited me to spend a week with his team to see what they do, and also to discuss the subject of assisted dying. Two things have been obvious while I've been here. The compassion and care from the staff as they help people to die in often very complex circumstances. And just as apparent a deep resistance to the thought of a sister dying. Exactly how deep I didn't realize until I sat down to speak with Richard.
3: Fear of a bad death.
1: Sufferers. Let's not make bad laws. And you'll go to sleep,
2: denying the them die. another this option. Exists. This leaves me no choice. perfect of
1: eugenic impulse. We just don't talk about it. Against the invasion we of play bad. the game. I
0: felt judged. But it was over. People want to an know. I know they can't control me. The, the police bill. are obliged to charge me. What
2: the hell can you do? Murder, manslaughter, Denying them another option. Don't do this lightly. Richard Chai is a gifted physician and teacher. He is also a hugely influential figure in palliative care in Australia. Apart from being a member of various state and national committees, he's a board member of Palliative Care Australia, the peak national organization. So what does the expression death with dignity mean to him? Death with dignity means that
1: patients have died comfortably from a physical and existential point of view, that they are not thrashing around as they die, that that love is still expressed by all, between patient and family, um, and that patients are able to slip away in their sleep when it's time, and therefore it's not for me to say when that is because it's the patient and his or her maker that decides when that will happen.
2: What symptoms are most difficult for you to control?
1: The most difficult symptom is existential.
2: That's interesting. What is that? How do you define it? It's
1: distress. Distress about, a patient's distress about their condition, their, their illness, what it's doing to them. That I think is the most difficult symptom to, to try and get over because it's not a physical symptom like pain or nausea, vomiting. It's It's an acceptance. It's a... Uh, um, mental anguish
2: and that's entirely understandable distress
1: That's un- yes and therefore what I try to do is to try and say to these patients these are the medications that we can use to help your pain, to prevent nausea and these are the people who can help you to the bathroom uh, and make sure that, that things are still very dignified for you and that we're here to help you understand what the illness
2: is doing for you um, palliative care australia acknowledges that even with optimal care not all pain and suffering can be relieved what are the kind of cases where you see a situation like that
1: i think there will always be patients who will have very difficult pain um and thankfully they actually very unusual, very rare. Very commonly, we'll need to resort to just more than medication. So we may actually have to do a nerve block. Uh, we may have to do a, a, a epidural to the spinal cord to numb everything. So very, very few patients die in physical pain.
2: And I think that's, that is, is um, important to know. Of course, all pain is mental. Whether it's physical or existential, it is your brain that processes it. And if it's your pain, then the question you're most likely asking yourself is, can it be stopped? According to Richard Chai, not always. I'm not going to say I'm going to control everybody's physical
1: pain. No, I'm not going to be able to do that, because there will always be some patients who will have pain that's not controlled. And I accept that, but I also make sure that I tell patients, this is the best I've done. This is as much as I can minimise your patient's pain, but I'm going to help you live with that pain.
2: Although palliative care is a place for the dying, Richard's focus is very much on how people can get the most out of the end of their life. That means walking a delicate line between doing everything to make the patient comfortable, but not prolonging their life unnecessarily. It's the credo of palliative care, we will neither hasten nor prolong death. Ask Richard what this means in practice. In terms of prolonging death is to make sure that we give the right treatment
1: to the right patient at the right time. I think that if the chances of surviving a disease is very poor, then giving treatment to Prolong that by a couple of weeks is prolonging death.
2: So what is the difference between not prolonging death but not hastening it? Not prolonging death is allowing the
1: disease to develop naturally with a view of not prolonging suffering, with a view that patients uh, are comfortable Uh, for the time that they have left. And yes, I recognise it's not an easy thing to differentiate, to say why is it different from hastening somebody's death uh, by giving them an injection, a lethal injection. And I think that's not an easy concept. But then again, it is normal to have those feelings as well. It's normal for me to say, I wish I can give you something that will kill you earlier so that you don't have to go through that suffering. That's a normal emotion to have. And again, I think if you don't have this emotion, then I think I'll be worried about myself and how I look after my patients.
2: Have you been involved in cases where you have unintentionally hastened a patient's death?
1: I don't think so. I can't think of any instance where I have... When you say it's unintentionally, hasten a patient's death. Pain medications is given every four hours. So there will be a small percentage who will die at the end of a needle. And people will say, Oh, the morphine has caused it. When in fact there was always gonna be a chance that some patients will die at the end of the needle. And some people then foresee it, oh well you've caused, you've given the needle, it's caused the death, that's what You've euthanized them when, in fact, they were going to die
2: anyway. And as you say, your primary intent is to, to manage pain. If, however, the medication isn't capable of managing the pain, is there a limit to the amount of medication you'll give?
1: Yes. Um,
2: I, more doesn't mean better.
1: I know in the Chinese culture it is. <laughs> but more opioids, just increasing the dose, doesn't mean. It will- pain will get better. I have to actually think of other ways of controlling pain, like other nerve medications, um, neuropathic agents, other methadone, for example. I have to think about whether a nerve block or an epidural that we talked about has a role. Because more of the same, I think, is not likely to work.
2: And if that combination of things doesn't work, and uh, I know we're talking about a small percentage, but that percentage exists, what then?
1: I walk with the patient. I say to them, yes, we've done our best to control your pain. Yes, the pain is still there, but I will help you live with that pain. The patients who have committed suicide on my watch were not in pain, not
2: in physical pain.
1: The patients who committed suicide on my watch feared that they, have, they will have pain.
2: That is a jolting thought that some people are so frightened by the prospect of dying they would rather kill themselves. All the more disturbing in a place where they know they've come to die. And what of those who actually ask for help as they near the end? Palliative Care Australia acknowledges that there are patients who make rational and persistent requests for a hastened death. In what situations would that occur?
1: I think in patients who don't want to live the way they are. Who have not accepted that their, that their lives have changed.
2: And when a, uh, a competent adult makes a rational and persistent and sincere request for a hastened death, how do you respond?
1: I would say to them that from my own morals, I would help them with their symptoms and their fears to the best of my ability. But I would not see it as my moral role and my ethical role to end that patient's life because I don't believe in that. Um, Law doesn't guide me.
2: It's my ethics and my morals that guides me more. Bang, so there it is, clear and unblinking. No matter the authenticity or desperation of a dying patient's request, Richard's medical response will ultimately be decided according to his morals. And this is not just anybody, this is the man in charge of palliative care. It makes me wonder whose life is it anyway? Richard Chai is a powerful voice in the Australian palliative care community, but he is not the only one.
3: I'm Ian Maddox and I'm retired. I was a palliative care physician for the last 28 years uh, and I'm now losing sight and hearing and unable to be useful to people. So uh, here I am.
2: Professor Ian Maddox is known as the father of palliative care in Australia. He was the first chair of palliative care at Flinders University, first president of the Australian Association for Hospice and Palliative Care and first president of the Australian and New Zealand Society for Palliative Medicine. Now retired, he sees the question of assisted dying from a very different perspective to Richard. I think
3: that, that you try to do the loving thing
2: in whatever situation
3: you land. And um, while the, the Catholic debate will say, you know, talk about love as being most important and God's love can keep... Um, love has got many ways of operating, I think, and, and I, I believe that assisting somebody to
2: die can be a loving act. Can you explain to me in practice what the central tenet of neither hastening nor prolonging death means?
3: So what does it mean to those people who practice palliative care? It's a defence against any accusation that they are using drugs that will shorten life. It's uh, a defence also against thinking that they've got too strong an emphasis on continuing life because they don't want to have that either. So it's on either count. I think it's a bit of a defensive sort of stance.
2: Is there some suffering that can, in truth, only be relieved by death?
3: It's tricky, but usually you can do something for physical suffering. It's the it's the social suffering of the family and the patient together. The the, the grief that's these are the things that are are telling. And uh, is this what's referred to as existential pain? Uh, I suppose I don't use that term much myself. It's personal discomfort that, that uh, you, you really have to try and tune into and understand. And again, it's why you need to walk beside people and you need to walk with the family as well because then you get a better picture, I think, of the whole thing that's, that's that we're facing and, and the strategies that you try to design need to take into account all those sorts of things.
2: From the patient's point of view, though, they may not always be something you can do it may be to a point where they don't
3: well want they, they don't want to that's right and they they're quite right and you've got to respect that um look i can do this and i can do that i've oh, you know stuff that why don't you just finish this and that's where the drugs sometimes do too much and they they make people well, they're too asleep. They're too comfortable in a sense. And some people will tell you, look, I don't mind a bit of pain, but let me just be awake.
2: Have there been any occasions where being entirely honest with yourself, you know that your actions helped hasten somebody's death? Oh, yes, 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 yes. And uh, But and very rarely, they've
3: usually been situations where I've said, if you take this and this and this... Um, or I've I've given an extra dose of medication because the whole thing was hopeless, you know, and and uh, the, the family are saying is there something, you know. But, but it's very uncommon from in my experience.
2: And and the fact that it's uncommon reflects absolutely what happens overseas where yeah, there's things it's, illegal. I mean, it's a very it's small not, number of people. Be, it's
3: not going to be a huge flood of of uh, people requesting and, and wanting, I think. I mean people want to live on the whole. And yes, and uh, that's it. Sometimes they want to live when you say, for God's sake, why do you want to live? You know? But they do. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
2: Is this something that you also know of uh, your colleagues, that they have been in similar situations?
3: It happens. Oh, well, it
2: must be happening because if you're doing
3: sensible things for particular situations, there will occasionally, rarely, be things where you feel that this is the right thing to do, I think. And unless you've got an absolutist point of view, which some
2: people have, then you will probably try to do something sensible. Ian is right. Even without a law, doctors in Australia have been assisting people to die for years. Not only did I get this anecdotally from many doctors I spoke to, surveys confirm it. In 1997, national research into the decisions doctors make while caring for dying patients found that euthanasia, including physician-assisted death, accounted for nearly 2% of all Australian deaths. In 2001, a national survey of general surgeons revealed that more than 20% had hastened death by giving more medication than was necessary, without the consent of the patient. And in 2007, a survey of Victorian doctors showed that of those who had experienced requests from patients to hasten death, 35% had administered drugs with the intention of doing so. So Ian Maddox is just one of perhaps thousands of doctors in Australia who have practised assisted dying. Only we don't really know how many, or whether they're doing it well, or for the right reasons, or with the consent of patients as they do overseas, because the absence of a law here means we have no guidelines, no reporting mechanisms, and no system of review. Everything has to stay in the dark. All we have is doctors doing what they believe is best, depending on their moral view of the universe. Which brings us back to Richard Chai. Even if his morals are Richard doesn't believe a safe law for assisted dying can ever be created. What I fear
1: most is whilst legislation safeguards whatever is put in place to help an individual right to be assisted to die, What my fear is is that it will lead to, because of bad apples, to people who are put to death or assisted to die without their consent for somebody else's gain. Um, And I think that whatever safeguards that you have in place or that the government has in place, is going to not prevent those things from happening. You no, know, I see that commonly, um, that it th- that they can be misused for personal gain or somebody else's gain.
2: When you say you see commonly, what do you mean here?
1: In Australia, yes.
2: Can you give an example?
1: I remember a case where we actually went to, to court about... Um, someone in, in the Northern Beaches, who who I think that the two ladies, and I can't remember them, um, admitted that they actually euthanized, love, in inverted commas, their, their loved one for personal gain. Um,
2: and, and I'm sure the law dealt with them. The law dealt with them, but unfortunately that patient died. Absolutely. But you see, that's happening without any scrutiny.
1: What I fear, however, is its implications. Meaning? Meaning if I do give something, a lethal injection to end somebody else's life, what are the implications for the next patient? How am I going to look after the next patient
2: who who doesn't deserve, doesn't want it? That would be a fair question, but under a law, it would be very, very clear because only the patient could request it. Yes and no. Well, yes, that's how it works.
1: Patients can request it, yes. I think the difficulty is what do we accept as what actually the patient wants? One in 20, 5% of our patients will express to me that they have enough, hmm. that they wish they died, had good links, don't want to live longer than they should. But does that mean they all want to die then? then? And I think that's, that's a, that is a thing that can be misconstrued very,
2: very quickly. Ian Maddox sees a law as not only desirable, but clearly workable. I have said at numbers of occasions that I would like to have an
3: assurance that if I did something sensible with, with loving care and without haste and transparently, that I would not be guilty of a criminal offence. But I think it would be possible to write uh, not a law that tries to define the circumstances in which you may kill somebody, but says that if doctors... Um, have done it without haste and for a clearly reported and and, defi- and, and explained suffering that will often be the, the discomfort of the stroke and all that sort of thing, then, um, then the, the, the doctor also is given the excuse of, but he has to report it, he has to have perhaps some oversight. You've got to be transparent about it, you've got to write it all down, you've got to have it there. After you've done it, you should report it to the coroner and say, this is what I've done and here are my records you
2: can go through. The business of dying is as complex and individual as the people who come to palliative care. No one knows this better than Richard Chai, who, despite his opposition to assisted dying, is nonetheless a believer in patient autonomy. We doctors don't give control to our patients
1: because we want to treat. And I think that is something that we haven't yet taught our doctors yet. You have to listen to your patients. You have to ask your patients what they want and what they don't
2: want, especially the parts about what they don't want. In the name of autonomy, Richard confirms that there is one way, in fact it's Palliative Care Australia policy, where it is OK to assist a patient should they wish to bring an end to their life more quickly.
1: It's part of the principle of autonomy that patients uh, have the right to refuse treatment even though that treatment may prolong their life.
2: I see. Are there people who refuse treatment, all treatment, including uh, food and water because they wish to die? Yes, they do. Um, How long does that take? If if you have gone off food and water, how long does it take a human body to shut itself down?
1: That's a very good question. And I've seen patients go in two or three days, and I had a patient who went after three weeks. So it varies, and it's according to how much what I would call, in inverted commas, reserve. Um, how much reserve do they actually have left in the body that can keep them going. Um, so uh, how much food have they consumed or, or were given just prior to stopping?
2: My sense is that to refuse uh, food and water is a painful way to go. I think it, I think not physically,
1: but psychologically, I think it is a very painful way to go. And I remember a patient who committed suicide, who decided to stop eating and drinking. And then because she was told if you do that, you'll be dead in two or three days. She committed
2: suicide because it hadn't happened after two weeks. Wow, that's a terrible thought. So, Palliative care Australia will accept patient autonomy when it comes to refusing food and water. Yes. But they won't accept patient autonomy when it comes to requesting a faster and a more merciful death. Why is that? I think palliative care Australia,
1: <clears throat> and I guess also from my point of view, uh, we're very keen to understand what patients want. So very, if, one patient, if a patient wants to stop treatment and... Die as a result of their illness, and that's something we would be very happy to accept, especially when the treatment was likely to to cause more burden than benefit. then yes, uh, by providing good palliative care, by good providing good psychosocial and symptom management, then that's the right thing to do for that patient. I think for a patient to actively say, Put me to death, kill me now. I think that's a fundamentally different thing um, because whilst my intent in palliative care is to keep patients comfortable as they die, my intent is not nece- is not definitely not to kill patients.
2: yeah, no, I certainly understand that from the patient's point of view though, I would imagine there's zero difference. you know I want to die, I don't have the option of dying quickly because it's not available here so I'll die as quickly as I can, which unfortunately might be two or three weeks.
1: Thankfully, that's very rare, that two or three weeks. But yes, I think it is uncomfortable for these patients to think that they are taking longer to die. Those patients who are waiting a long time to die, those families who are waiting for their loved one to die and taking a longer time, what it means for us is, yes, I acknowledge... And we acknowledge that it's taking longer, but we're still going to provide you with the best care that we can.
2: And I don't doubt that, but to me it still sounds very tough. You know, that that patient who is beyond any medical help, who has determined that they wish to die, but whose only choice is to have a longer, slower dying, two, three days, two, three weeks, to whose benefit are they being kept alive?
1: I think that patients who live do provide some benefit for the rest of the family, for themselves.
2: Of all the things that I learnt during the making of this podcast, I found this to be the most shocking, that it is ethically, officially, acceptable in Australia for a patient to choose to die slowly and painfully by means of dehydration and starvation, but it is ethically unacceptable for that same patient to choose a death that is painless and quick. Since that conversation, I received a letter unprompted from Jason in Queensland. He wrote of his dying wife, Melanie. At the moment, she's lying next to me in her hospital bed, slowly dying from pancreatic cancer. It has been ten days without any food or drink and she has now deteriorated to just a shell of the woman she used to be. She's not in pain, but it's hardly dignified. She would not have wanted to go out like this. Jason wrote to me again a week later. He wanted to emphasise the heroic work of the palliative care team in caring for his wife. But he added this. The last five days or so were particularly bad. There were very few signs that Melanie was conscious at all and letting a lie there gasping for air just seemed cruel. Melanie was just 38. I was talking with Dr Redleman about this the other day. And he referred to euthanasia or a sister dying as murder. Is that how you see it? If that's the intent of actually killing
1: a patient, then yes, it is murder, because murder is the intention to kill.
2: See, this is, our, this is where I'm really interested, because you and he are both really intelligent, compassionate men do you not see a distinction between an, an unrequested act of violent aggression and a sincerely requested act of medical compassion? But the intention is still there.
1: Intention doesn't change.
2: No, the intention is the patient's intention. It's no, not an intention from someone else to murder someone. It's, an, it's, a, it's a request for help from a patient to help me die. Do you not see a significant difference there? No, I,
1: I think there is a difference because it's what I do to hasten a patient's death. It's my intention. It's not
2: a patient's intention I'm talking about. Okay, and it's, that's kind of at the heart of it because you were saying before, doctors need to be better at listening to their patients. So isn't this about the patient's intention? It is a patient's intention
1: to want to die, yes. But for me to assist in that it is also my intention. My personal intention as a doctor
2: to actually enact that. On one level, I have no argument with Richard. His morality is his, and he is entitled to hold it. But should his be the only view allowed? Death is much more than a medical experience. As one poet described it, death is the last intimate thing we do. Shouldn't the patient's wishes about this deeply personal act also be considered? In Oregon, the Netherlands and Belgium, the law allows doctors and nurses with moral objections to assisted dying to refuse to participate. There's no need to explain, no question or censure, they simply opt out. Those who see assisted dying as consistent with their medical duties act also according to their conscience. In Belgium, I met a Jesuit priest who was also a palliative care doctor. He had ethical objections to assisted dying and so wouldn't perform it. But if a patient of his chose the option within palliative care, Then he would do everything to prepare them, physically and spiritually, up until their final moments before putting them into the care of another doctor who would legally help them to die. Everybody's conscience remained clear, but it was the patient's wishes that were considered to be the most important thing. Every year, Wollongong University's Health Services Unit collects data from the 106 palliative care units across Australia. The most recent showed that one-fifth of patients in the last 24 hours of life endured moderate to severe pain despite the best efforts of palliative care. 30% of families watching their loved ones die also experienced moderate to severe pain. Shane Higson knows this pain all too well. Her mother, Jan, contracted an aggressive form of brain cancer. At first, she was nursed at home by the family with help from palliative care teams.
0: Well, Mum ended up her quality of life had deteriorated to a point where she couldn't um she couldn't read she couldn't write, she could hardly speak. she was bedridden she'd lost all feeling down one side, and uh, she was she'd tell me try to describe what it felt like. she felt that her body was already half dead.
2: In her last months, Jan began to suffer terrible seizures.
0: She was seizuring for, oh, I don't know how long it was, over, well over an hour, maybe a couple of hours. She said it was like a giant thrashing around in her body. So the brain, as you know, like it, 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 it creates it, all the sensations. So things were happening in her. She kept shaking and sh- and of course in the back of my mind was that was what she feared the most was having another seizure she said whatever you do do not let me have another seizure and so I knew that that through the whole six months that that was what she feared the most because of how dreadful it felt to her and uh, she kept shaking it took when that when she didn't stop shaking I, we said can you give her more it's not working he said I can only give her this amount and every 15 minutes, I'm not authorised to give her any more. If I give her more, it might end it.
2: Like many people, Jan had always believed that when the time came and the pain of her cancer became too much, doctors would do something to prevent her suffering.
0: She was very clear what she wanted. And she'd said it right at the beginning as well. But, but they, you know, they're not allowed to. That's the thing. Once she went into hospital, that's when I really realised that, that there is, there is, it's just not allowed. It's not allowed. The, the terminal sedation, which is the best option that we have now, does not guarantee um, a peaceful end.
2: When you spoke to the medical staff, when you spoke to them, you said to them clearly, my mum wants to be knocked out. Mm-hmm. Do you recall clearly what they said to you in response or was it a vague sort of obfuscation?
0: No, they, they, they actually said, I think your mum might have depression. So,
2: so so I've got this picture clear, she was within a couple of weeks of death yes. at this point, she had uh, a, a major brain tumour, well, multiple, multiple brain tumours, was clearly in pain and her body was shutting down all over the place and they said she may have depression.
0: Yes, yeah. Mum didn't really like when the palliative care um, doctor came because I don't know mum wasn't religious and um just the manner the sort of questions that were being asked and I know that he would have been you know he meant well um but coming in and saying well Jan how are you feeling and you know she'd say how she was feeling this is early on when she could talk and sort of say and when she started asking and saying I just want to be knocked out and he, he said why she said because I want to stop thinking I I want to stop, down, shut down what I'm thinking. And he said, well, what are you thinking about? I mean, she just sort of looked at, you know, if she was the sort of person that would swear, I think she would have sworn at him because, you know, like, what, what do you think she was... Th- was I think she, that's what she said. What do you think I'm thinking about?
2: With days to live, Jan was moved into the palliative care unit at a private hospital. She was in such pain that her family begged she'd be given something to knock her out. Can you tell me about... Jan's last days because there was still a lot of pain ahead, wasn't there?
0: Yes, it, it was sort of a bit of a, a really difficult time because they, she was having trouble swallowing and she, all her medication was in tablet form and um, it was such a battle, she stopped eating.
2: As the end approached, Jan spiralled into greater pain.
0: They did say that um, at the end, if they go off the medication, it's... It ends it quicker but it's not pleasant so that you know just seeing mum so the one side of her that that was okay on the second night she was thrashing her head from side to side and the leg was going up and down up and down up and down so it's like seeing someone thrashing around but only with half their body. And again, you know we called in the the staff and, and tried to get medication that would would ease that suffering and the distress and the agitation. and and it took again ages before they were able, because they're not allowed to give they' they're so frightened of giving doses that may end it, and uh,
2: so the best that they were prepared to throw at it clearly offered no genuine relief.
0: No. No, I thought that terminal sedation, not that I knew that that's what it was called, but the way that the GP had described it, I thought sort of, you know, basically, and I've heard it described now, where they put you into an induced, sort of a induced coma, I was picturing, and where there would be no suffering, but that's not right. So
2: how many nights did this go on altogether?
0: Five, five days. She went in on Thursday and she died on Tuesday morning.
2: So five days of uh, largely unrelieved pain and distress, mm. for her, of course, also for you. And at no point was anyone prepared to go, we can do more.
0: No. No, 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 not a nurse or a doctor or anything.
2: The strong sense I get as I'm listening to you is that you must have all felt... And above all, your mum completely powerless and helpless in this situation.
0: Yes, yes, completely powerless and uh, angry, really, really upset that um, at that such a terrible time that you are sort of battling. This, you know, just shouldn't have to be like that. At one point, my old sister, she said to the GP what What are we meant to do? go down on the you know down to King's Cross on the street and and try and score heroin or something like what what choice you know what what are you saying? like what choice do we have? I mean, we just couldn't believe what was happening at that end stage.
2: Did your mum get any peace before she died?
0: I wouldn't say so. it wasn't peaceful, and the look on her face at the end um yeah, showed it was not a peaceful a peaceful end. I don't. And that's and if that's the best that they can offer sort of thing, I that's it's not we can do better than that.
2: What happened to her mother spurred Shane to stand for the Senate as a candidate for the Voluntary Euthanasia Party.
0: I'm happy to speak to any of the opponents and say, you know, tell me what happened to my mum is right, is humane, is compassionate, because it wasn't. And you know, they can't they can't deny what happened to mum. I mean I it's all You know, I'd recorded it and um, it happened. The doctors can't deny what happened. They can't really say that it wasn't good palliative care because actually mum had the best palliative care.
2: What Shane's mum went through was far removed from anyone's description of death with dignity. The scars it left behind for Shane may never heal.
0: That last few weeks, I felt like I let her down and I didn't get, you know, the love and the the goodbye that I would have liked, that I think everybody deserves um, when you love someone like a parent and you've taken care of them but she would have felt let down she sort of said things like why are they torturing me why are they so cr-? meaning the doctors you know this why are they so cruel this is torture and it was it was torture to make to force her to endure that end <laughs>
2: Shane's story and others I'd heard like it were very much in my head when I sat down for my last conversation with Richard Chai. I've spoken with people who are still alive, who've been through palliative care in Australia, for whom the pain relief hasn't really touched the sides. I've spoken with families who've seen their family members die in palliative care units in Australia, begging for more medication and being told that there wasn't more, or there wasn't more scheduled right now. Who could be more vulnerable than these people? Why shouldn't they be protected?
1: They are vulnerable patients. They are vulnerable people. And yes, if they are not getting the adequate symptom management, um, then it's a health system issue that we need to try and solve. But but you know
2: why why it's happening. We've discussed it because there is a limit to how much, in some cases, pain relief you'll give. You said so yourself the other day. And that limit, effectively, is I want to die. I need to die. I can't stand this anymore. Part of the provision of palliative care is
1: understanding, yes, the reasons for wanting to die, if pain is a very difficult symptom and that has led to a patient saying, I want to die, then it invokes in me the need to do better, to try and improve that pain. And if I cannot improve that pain, then I try and help that patient live with that pain.
2: That's very tough if you're that patient, Richard. It
1: Uh, is very tough. Um, but I'm not going to leave that patient. I'm not going to leave that patient in pain.
2: But effectively you are. I mean, I'm not saying you personally, but effectively that's what you're doing. For those patients that can't be helped, that is effectively what you're doing.
1: No, I, I don't agree with that. I think that I'm not leaving that patient in pain.
2: I'm, Who are these people screaming for help? That yeah, I've
1: that's a, I th- That's a systems issue that I think we need to examine why patients are, as you said, Asking for pain relief and being
2: told is not due yet. It's, it's your system, though, Richard. I mean, it's and again, I'm not saying you, Richard Chai. I'm saying it's it's palliative care. It's end of life care. It is your system. We're not we're not perfect. Of course not. We're not perfect in that palliative care system. And you can't be. And no one suggests that you can or should be, yeah. because there are some things which can't be managed, which are beyond all your efforts and skills. But I
1: think we need to look at. I think if someone is saying that I'm in pain, we need to be able to look not only at the treatment but look at the system as well. So what are the systems that why is the patient not able to to get pain relief? Is it because we have staff not only in the palliative care arena but uh, but also in the hospital arena in terms of are they adequately trained, are they have the resources? to 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 manage them and i'm saying at the moment no i don't think we have all the resources that palliative care in australia requires to be able to provide the best care that we can at this point in time and that includes that includes educating the rest of the non-palliative care health system about how to look after our dying
2: and they are all good questions and they should be asked and asked consistently however Palliative Care Australia says that even with optimal care, not all pain and suffering uh, can be relieved. And so for those few people, that small number of people that you can't help, you offer nothing. It's not a systemic failure. It's a, it's a deliberate decision. Well, let me ask you this. Is it true that there is some suffering that, only, that can only be relieved by death?
1: In medicine, we never say never,
2: but in reality, I don't know, Richard. Because I I, I'm I'm not going yes. to. This is the only time where no. I thought you've been disingenuous. I think you do know. I would feel that
1: there will be times, and I think it's normal for me to feel if I haven't controlled your pain or haven't controlled your depression or your mood, yes, you're probably better off dying earlier than now. But that's not going to stop me from trying. It means that I acknowledge that the problem is difficult. It means I acknowledge to myself, to my team, to my patient, that it's just difficult. Acknowledge that it's not easy to look after a particular symptom. Acknowledge that I'm going to be trying my best to help that patient. Acknowledge that I'm going to be with my patient to try look after the patient and try and minimize that suffering as much as I can. Yes, in my heart, I would think that this patient Maybe better off dying earlier but that's a normal reaction normal emotion for me to have and I think that if I didn't have the emotion I have to worry about myself but it doesn't absolve me from abandoning my patient and trying
2: which is admirable but with respect what I hear there is that's about you but not about the patient
1: No, I also acknowledge with the patient that it's hard. Acknowledge that the patient is going through a very difficult period, going through a lot of suffering. Yes, acknowledge that. And that's part of that acknowledgement with the patient who understands that they are suffering. Yes, they will say this suffering is very hard for them, and they would prefer to die. And I would say to them, yes, I acknowledge that you are feeling that way, but I will continue to try and make you feel better so you don't have to feel that way. So I don't see, it's not for me to say, or not my practice or not my ethics or not my moral to say, because I can't look after you, you're better off dead and I'll pursue that end. No, that's not me. And that's not palliative
2: care. And nor should it be. And and as you know, that under these proposed laws, it would never be you saying that. It would be the patient requesting it. I'll finish with uh, Palliative Care Australia's uh, statement that it accepts quality care at the end of life as a basic human right. Does that human right stop with somebody requesting to end their life by their own timing?
1: I think quality care is providing the best care that we can so that the patient is provided with good end-of-life care. I don't see providing euthanasia as part of the quality care. I don't think Palliative Care Australia sees euthanasia as quality care.
2: There are others, perhaps many, working in palliative care in Australia who share Eymatic's view that...
3: Euthanasia should be done the way we do palliative care and palliative care physicians should be ready to be part of it if they are allowed to and they feel able to. They should do it with
2: love. Make no mistake. To assist someone to die who is otherwise beyond medical help and who asks for that assistance is not an act of murder. They are already dying. What they seek is a compassionate choice about how it happens. Far from murder, it is an act of love. Palliative Care Australia's official line whenever the subject of assisted dying comes up is to deflect it by arguing that the way to provide better care for their patients is through giving palliative care greater funding and more resources. While no one would argue that this is a bad idea, palliative care provides an important and admirable service. It deliberately skips over those patients who they cannot help, either by law, by the limits of medicine, or by the boundaries of their own morality. It makes invisible Spencer Ratcliffe's partner, Deb, clawing the walls in pain and being told she has to wait for her next medication. It makes invisible Shane Higson's mum, Jan, thrashing in agony for five nights with a brain tumour because she was told, we can do no more. It makes invisible 38-year-old Melanie, who took 15 days without food and water to die, the last five of which her husband Jason described as cruel. It makes invisible those patients who have committed lonely suicide with palliative care rather than endure the slow grind of death. It makes invisible those 20% of their patients who, according to their own statistics, endured moderate to severe pain in the last 24 hours of their life, despite the best efforts of palliative care. And it makes invisible those families who've had to stand by helplessly and watch as their loved ones die slowly and in pain. My question is, why? Everyone I spoke to in palliative care acknowledges they exist – the bad deaths who they wish they could have done more for, why aren't these patients the ones Palliative Care Australia are doing everything to help? Why do they continue to reject any thought of assisted dying even though they must know that it will provide the relief they can't? How can they already accept in principle that a dying patient has a right to hasten their own death but reject that they have a right to choose how? How can they claim to support patient autonomy, yet at the same time allow the personal morality of their doctors to determine the choices of their patients? And why do they continue to push the line that legalised assisted dying would detract from palliative care, when overseas experience has shown that in those countries where such laws exist, palliative care services have improved as a direct result? If palliative care is truly, as Palliative Care Australia claims, about quality care at the end of life, then as long as patients are dying like Deb and Jan and Melanie, it is fair to question that claim. In the 1980s, the nuns of Sacred Heart set aside their morality and threw open their doors to Sydney's HIV-ravaged gay community. It was a powerful demonstration of the love and compassion that lies at the heart of palliative care. Assisted dying is love and compassion extended to those who are most desperately in need. I hope that on this, Palliative Care Australia will look again with clear eyes and honest hearts. If you'd like to know more, head to the episode page at wheelercentre.com slash betteroffdead. In our next episode... We travel on the long journey with Ray Godbold, a palliative care nurse who's dying of cancer, but who doesn't want to die in palliative care. That's because Ray knows what some doctors prefer not to admit, that even in palliative care, not everything can be taken care of, that a patient's choices about how they die are very limited, and that sometimes their dying involves a wildness no one can predict. What Ray can't know is that his own death will turn out to be everything he was hoping that he and his family would be spared. Twelve angels from the north, twelve angels from the south, twelve angels from the east, twelve angels from the west.
0: Better Off Dead is produced by Andrew Denton and Bronwyn Reid for Thought Fox and the team from the Wheeler Center. Visit better slash betteroffdead to hear the series and subscribe and to learn more about the people and ideas from each episode.
2: Angels shooting from your brow, angels leaping from your mouth, angels lighting on your shoulders, east and west, north and south. Ooh.